listening to KHOL. This is a bonus episode of Jackson Unpacked, our weekly show featuring reporting and interviews on local news, music, and culture. I'm news director Kyle Mackey. Today, we're excited to share a recent episode of the show Wild Card from our friends at KVNF in Peonia, Colorado. It's a roundup of some of the best recent stories from across the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Collaborative, which KHOL is a member of. The show also includes one of our stories that aired a couple weeks ago on Jackson Unpacked about the controversy over scenic helicopter tours near Grand Teton National Park. Here's Wild Card. You're tuned to Wild Card. I'm KVNF News Director Gavin Dahl. On today's program, I've assembled a selection of stories from around the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. We'll hear about the first year of Colorado's red flag law as it impacts Montezuma County in southwest Colorado, the emerald ash borer infesting trees on the Front Range, a clash over helicopter tours at Grand Teton National Park, a park ranger in Moab explaining leave-no-trace principles, Congressman Joe Nagoose talking about wildfire preparedness in Winter Park, a state Labor Department official explaining the Colorado Response Program in Alamosa, blind journalist Nick Eisenberg touring a hands-on rock and gem shop in Glenwood Springs that encourages customers to touch the merchandise, and we'll hear an unreleased original song from Bonnie Payne and Bridget Law. This is Wildcard. Starting us off, 2020 marked the first year of Colorado's red flag law. It was only used once in Montezuma County and 111 times in the state as a whole. Tay Glass at KSJD Cortez examines what the past, present, and future look like for Colorado's red flag law. Bria Kinsella lives in Mancus in Montezuma County. You can hear her daughter and her niece giggling in the background. Here are the girls, Sophia and Lily. There they are. Hi, nice to meet you. (laughs) Kinsella is the executive director of Celebrating Healthy Communities. She identifies as liberal and a proud gun owner. A funny joke that I like to tell my libertarian and more right-wing friends is that I'm so far left that I got my guns back. (laughs) But she's on the fence when it comes to Colorado's ERPO law. ERPO stands for Extreme Risk Protection Orders, but most people know ERPOs as red flag laws. They vary a little state to state, but generally ERPO laws are gun control measures that let police or family members petition the courts to remove firearms specifically from a person who poses a significant risk to themselves or others. And so if you're having a mental wellness crisis and someone can come take your firearm away, then chances are you'll make it through that crisis, right? On the flip side is that chances are the enforcement is going to be inequitable. Do you think something like Colorado's red flag laws can ever be talked about as a nonpartisan issue? This polarization is so intense, especially in Southwest Colorado. Like, you have very angry people on the right, you have very angry people on the left. Although Colorado's red flag law was only used once in Montezuma County in its first year, and just over 100 times statewide, there's been a lot of discussion about it recently. Part of that is to do with the recent shootings in Boulder and Colorado Springs. Depending on who you talk to, the red flag law could have made a difference. This is Eileen McCarran. Is it fair to say, Eileen, that you're kind of one of the driving forces behind Colorado's red flag law, ERPO? Well, I'll let you know this, that that most people don't know that, that our, our organization was the driving force behind it here in Colorado. McCarran is the president of Colorado Ceasefire Legislation. 
Do you think that, I mean, had someone used ERPO or this red flag law, it could have prevented the shooting? Yes. Absolutely. This is all hypothetical, of course. It's not clear whether the shooter's family even knew about Colorado's red flag law, but McCarran thinks broader knowledge of this law could prevent unnecessary gun deaths in the future. And parts of Colorado's legislature seem to agree. In the wake of the Boulder shooting, they introduced a series of bills. One of them would provide funding for the Gun Violence Prevention Office. One of their charges is to help educate the public on ERPO and other gun laws of the state. The bill that would create the Office of Gun Violence Prevention is currently under consideration by the Colorado General Assembly. If it's approved, the office would exist within the Department of Public Health and Environment. Public health, not mental health. Colorado's red flag law very deliberately doesn't mention mental health. Only a small portion of people who are mentally ill are violent. And there are people who are violent who are not mentally ill. Daniel Fennelson is on the board of the Colorado State Shooting Association, Colorado's NRA affiliate. Fennelson's and McCarran's organizations don't always see eye to eye, but... I don't think red flag laws are about mental health. Um, I also don't think um, red flag law bills are about um, protecting people. Again, protecting people means that you allow them to defend themselves. This is personal for Fennelson. And as a school shooting survivor, I've seen what happens when those rights are taken away um, in a very liberal city um, when it comes to the gun issue, where we were not allowed to be armed, um, but the criminal didn't listen to the rules. Fennelson was in his biology lab when a gunman killed one and injured two others at Seattle Pacific University in 2014. He thinks taking a person's gun away could stop that person from defending themselves. We believe in personal responsibility for our own safety and our family's safety. We just don't think that government intervention is, is the way to produce um, a, a safer Colorado or a safer Cortez. Dr. Emmy Betts is the founder of Colorado Firearm Safety Coalition. She did an exhaustive study of all of the uses of Colorado's red flag law in 2020. ERPOs and red flag laws are an important option, but really the last resort. You know, this is sort of the equivalent of taking away your friend's driver's license instead of, you know, getting him a ride home from the bar when he's had too much to drink. Betts thinks that, regardless of what side of the debate you're on, Coloradans should agree on one thing. For me, it really comes back to the central point, the central belief that none of us wants to lose friends or family to firearm injuries or deaths. And that's something I heard time and time again from people on both sides. Bria Kinsella from Durango had this to say. I mean, at the end of the day, it's going to be the conversations that happen in the bar or at the farm or at the bank line or whatever, where a person like me can look at a person way far right of me and have a conversation and remember that that person is human. And there are certainly more conversations to be had. From KSJD and Cortez, I'm Tay Glass. Health and prevention reporting on KSJD is made possible with support from Celebrating Healthy Communities, the Montezuma County Health Department, and Southwest Health System. Around 15% of the trees on the Front Range are ash trees, and they're all at risk from emerald ash borer larvae, currently turning into adult beetles that are emerging right now, ready to infest new ash trees. For Emerald Ash Borer Awareness Week, KGNU Boulder's Hannah Lee Myers spoke with two members of the Colorado Emerald Ash Borer Response Team about the current status of the threat to Colorado's trees 
and the most recent guidance to address the growing problem. My name is Lisa Mason, and I'm the horticulture agent for CSU Extension in Arapahoe County. And emerald ash borer is an invasive insect from Asia. In its native range in Asia, it has natural pests that keep the population under control. But uh, it came via wood products uh, to the United States back in 2002. And here in the United States, it doesn't have any of those natural pest controls. So it impacts all ash trees in the, in the Fraxinus genus. And it's, it's very deadly to all of our ash trees. It's a green metallic wood boring beetle and it, it's spreading. From what I understand, EAV was first detected in Colorado in 2013. What about other states? I haven't heard much about how other states and other parts of the U.S. are dealing with EAB. My name is Dana Coelho. I am the Urban and Community Forestry Program Manager for the Colorado State Forest Service, which is also part of Colorado State University. The city of Denver organized some of their forestry professionals and city council members a few years ago to visit these cities and these places in the Midwest where EAB has done a number on their urban forests. So the type of strategies that are being used in other states, in other cities, and along the front range in Colorado, there's a few, few different options that we have. So proactive removals. If you have ash trees that are being damaged by something else, which is highly likely. Uh, there are lots of insects that love to munch on ash trees. So if we see unhealthy trees that would be more susceptible to EAB, a city or a homeowner can choose to remove those so that they don't become a host for a larger infestation. If we have healthy large, mature, benefit-providing, shade-providing ash trees in our homes and, our, and on our, public, our local public lands, there are treatment options. So insecticides that can be used on those trees in a safe and professional manner to protect that tree from becoming infested with, with EAB. And then when we start talking about this longer term and full cycle urban forest management, if we're removing trees, we're pruning out damaged and dead parts of trees, being able to use that wood, whether it's for firewood that doesn't have little EABs in it or wood products, biochar, there's lots of folks um, along the front range looking for markets to help pay for those really expensive removals and management activities of our urban forest and of our ash trees. I'm curious what you would say to folks that might have one or multiple ash trees on their property and they're thinking, well, I really don't want to spend that $200, $250 to get my tree injected. You know, I'm going to, I don't want to deal with the hassle. I'm going to take my chances. The cool thing about um, some of the, the insecticide products is if your tree already has emerald ash borer and the tree has not lost more than 30% of the tree canopy, you can actually have an arborist treat that tree after it's been infested with emerald ash borer. This is Dana. So I think it's okay to wait. There's no reason to feel like you have to 
start investing in trunk injections if you are not in a known infested area. Could one of you list those local areas where EAB has been identified? So that's in, in and around the city of Boulder in 2013. Uh, it spread in 2016 up to Longmont, 2017 into Lafayette, 2018 and 2019 into a little more of the Denver metro area and Broomfield and Adams County around Westminster. And then the most recent detections um, were in 2020. So last, last year in Louisville and in Arvada. The Colorado State Forest Service has a project called your ash is on the line because we are oh so clever in naming things. Um, but that looks at the entire front range as a at-risk area for the spread of this pest. And we're working on getting more of this type of you know private land and public land management options and management information out there so that people know what their options are and they know what they're looking for. Let's talk a little bit about how to identify the presence of EAB, what to look for there. So that's tough. Emerald ash borer is very tough to detect inside a tree, and it can be inside of a tree for years before you even notice. The classic sign is the, the D-shaped exit holes. Those usually start at the top of the tree, though. And those holes are, like Lisa said, toward the top of the tree. They're also very tiny. Basically, if you can see the adult beetle, the adult borer, it's not, it's not EAB. They're incredibly, incredibly tiny insects. The other signs and symptoms of emerald ash borer are uh, that the tree is stressed out. So it might, the canopy might start thinning. Uh, sometimes it can shoot up epicormic uh, shoots, which are basically branches with, with leaves that appear on the tree and in places they shouldn't. And, and use your county extension office as a local resource. Um, if you have any tree, any sick tree or lawn troubles or insect questions, uh, your local county extension office can, can help you with that. So um, look us up and, and give us a call or send us an email. And our listeners can find that information on our website at news.kgnu.org where we'll be posting links to those resources. Thank you both for joining me. I appreciate your time. For KGNU, I'm Hanley Myers. Heading northbound, both the Teton County Board of Commissioners and the town of Jackson recently passed unanimous bans on commercial air tours over Grand Teton National Park. The newly adopted resolutions come less than a year after a private company started operating scenic helicopter tours out of the Jackson Hole Airport. However, as KHOL Jackson's Kyle Mackey reports, those flights aren't likely to stop anytime soon. The Jackson Town Council got at least 25 emails supporting a ban on scenic flights over the park during the week leading up to the May 17th meeting when the new resolution was adopted. The messages came from a range of community stakeholders, including Jackson resident Mike Halloran. Well, I think it's absurd, and I don't know what planet the FAA lives on that it permits heli tours in a precious national park. Halloran's comment cuts to the heart of the issue when it comes to commercial air tours over Grand Teton National Park. Neither local government nor the park itself has the authority to ban them. 
Commercial air tours are managed by the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA. So the town and county actions are largely symbolic, as was confirmed by Jackson Town Attorney Leah Colaswano during the recent no more meeting. Than symbolic, it expresses your, you know, community's statement in terms of being the elected officials for the community about the air tour issue in the community. And Despite their lack of authority, local leaders say they're opposed to the tours because of documented negative impacts like noise pollution, wildlife disturbances, and potential safety hazards. County Commissioner Luther Probst also echoes the worries of many area residents when he says he's concerned not just about one operator, but the bigger picture down the road. I've spent time in Hawaii, on Kauai and Maui and Molokai, where the helicopter business has become a, a, a big industry. And um, I'm concerned that, that if we can't find a way to regulate or to prohibit helicopters, that we're going to wind up with another amusement park type activity that has impacts on wildlife and that has impacts on every other form of outdoor recreation. I feel like I have a right to operate those tours as much as anybody else, as much as the river rafters, as much as the wildlife tours and vans, as much as the snowshoe guides, the, the mountain guides, I mean, all the above. Tony Chambers is the founder and helicopter pilot of Wind River Air LLC, which he started in 2018. He says scenic flights now make up about a third of his business and that he tries to concentrate the tours he operates from the Jackson Hole Airport to just a couple of days per week. Even so, Chambers' Red Robinson R-44 helicopter is becoming a familiar sight to area residents like Ryan Dorgan of Kelly, who captured multiple videos of a red helicopter flying over Grand Teton National Park between July and December 2020. This audio is used with permission from both Dorgan and the Jackson Hole News and & Guide. And can you tell me about who your typical clients are for those scenic flights? Um, so the typical client is a mixture of uh, visitors and locals. Contrary to popular belief, it's not like the, the rich and famous that can afford to do these flights. It's actually just normal people kind of normal everyday people that are on vacation and it's a bucket list item, something that they want to do and, and they do it in their tickle paint. Chambers says he estimates that about 20% of his clients are locals, but there's also plenty of local opposition to his business. As of Monday, 2,542 people have signed the Jackson Hole Conservation Alliance's Heli No petition opposing the tours, according to the Alliance's conservation program manager, Chelsea Carson. The goal of the campaign is to permanently ban heli tours over the park through congressional legislation. There's a lot of steps involved. So um, I would say I'm very hopeful. And the fact that we have the town and county resolution, the fact that we have really large community engagement and opposition on this issue, I think that we're setting ourselves up really well. But that's there, it's just a little early to say how this is all going to play out. Too early, in part, because Chambers' permit to continue operating scenic flights was just renewed for another year in April by the Jackson Hole Airport Board. But the board also chastised Chambers for what they said were clear departures from the flight pass he agreed to fly in and out of the airport, which is located within the park and the only part of the park Chambers is authorized to fly over. The board president also cited alleged violations of Grand Teton's request that chambers fly above 2,000 feet while in park airspace. Bob McLaurin is the lone member of the airport board who voted against the permit extension. I voted against it because I looked at the flight tracks that had been flown. 
Um, and my understanding of that data that was presented by our president, John Eastman, I didn't feel I could, could vote for it because he hadn't done what he said he was going to do. Chambers says there's no merit to the claims that he's flying over the park more than necessary for his scenic tours. That's because there are different rules for different kinds of flights. How can you or the airport board distinguish the different flights that I perform? How do you know it's a scenic flight versus a ferry flight versus an instructional flight? You don't. McLaurin says Chambers has a point there, but that there's also some evidence the pilot's behavior has improved since he was reprimanded by the board. My understanding is he's not flying over the park nearly as much since uh, we had that conversation at the airport board. Chambers says he's not interested in developing an air tour management plan with the FAA and the National Park Service, which would be required for him to fly over more of the park. But the other federal land his scenic tours fly over, he says, like the National Elk Refuge and parts of the Bridger Teton, aren't subject to that kind of protection. Over non-wilderness forest, there is no altitude requirements, no other, no other regulations. And that's regulated by the FAA. It's not regulated by the forces. The FAA declined KHOL's interview request for this story. The administration also declined to say how many noise or other complaints it's gotten related to Wind River Air through the FAA hotline. The town says there's been at least six violations over the park, which Chambers disputes. My record with the FAA is squeaky clean, zero violations on any kind of level, any kind of activity. And my safety record is squeaky clean with no incidents, no accidents, no, no nothing. The FAA has also told the airport board that revoking or denying a renewal permit for Chambers would automatically trigger an investigation. That could potentially jeopardize about $132 million in FAA funding for the airport, according to the News & Guide. In short, local residents like Halloran could be left frustrated for a while, but that doesn't mean they might not try to take matters into their own hands. I would say that there are citizens in Jackson um, who have sufficient money to do this and are considering litigation against them as we speak. Interesting. Are you one of those people? I am. Another outcome short of federal legislation that the Conservation Alliance is hoping might be a possibility is that Chambers will voluntarily stop his scenic flights in the face of vocal community opposition. He says that's not likely. I live here. I operate here. Business is just fine. I don't, there's no reason whatsoever for me to want to walk away. Kyle Mackey, K-12 News. Boulder-based Congressman Jonah Goose toured Grand County to view the burn scar from the East Troublesome Fire and stopped in at KFFR Winter Park for a chat with volunteer host Anna Schapansky. Here are some highlights. Thanks for tuning in this evening to KFFR Winter Park Community Radio for the Fraser Valley and the headwaters of the Colorado River at 88.3 FM and streaming online at kffr.org. My name is Anna Schapansky, and I am happy to announce that we have a special visitor in the studio today, our own Congressman Joe Nagoose, um, who is the U.S. Representative for Colorado's 2nd District and um, one of seven, which next year I understand will become one of eight, <laughs> thanks to the U.S. Census. Congressman Nagoose is the head of the U.S. Subcommittee on National Parks, Forest, and Public Lands, and he was also ranked the eighth most effective 
congressperson during the 116th Congress by the Center for Effective Lawmaking, which is a nonpartisan organization. Say hello to Grand County. Yes, well, good afternoon. It's great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. So you've been up several times to tour the East Troublesome Fire area, and that's what you were up to today. So do you want to kind of tell us what you were doing? And then also, I'm curious if there is someone in the county or a certain story that has come out of this tragedy in our county that has sort of stuck with you or has helped you go back to Washington and make the case for legislation for um, the, the victims of this terrible fire. Yeah, well, it's great to be back in Grand County, first and foremost, and uh, to be able to have the opportunity to visit with local officials and talk to them about the important reforestation and uh, wildfire mitigation and resiliency work that needs to be done, and to visit with small businesses as well that have been hit really hard by the pandemic and, of course, now are roaring back, and it's uh, good to be able to see uh, the uh, the community here in Grand County really bouncing back um, in, a, in a significant way. Uh, it's a privilege to be able to represent this wonderful community in the United States Congress. And uh, as I uh, visited with local officials today, my one takeaway, uh, which is uh, similar to the takeaway I had uh, when I was here a few months ago in November, uh, visiting with the commissioners and with other folks, is resiliency. Uh, just how resilient. Uh, this community is. Uh, folks in Grand Lake and Granby and Fraser across the entire county, uh, a community that was obviously hit hard by the unprecedented East Troublesome Fire, uh, but found a way forward, uh, charted a path forward to take care of each other during a pretty turbulent time. Uh, I, the memories that will last for me were, you know, visiting with uh, the emergency response officials and, uh, and others and folks in law enforcement, your sheriff and other folks back in November, uh, who are doing such, just such tremendous, incredible work. Um, you know, literally, uh, they have homes who were impacted by the fire, right? And we're still going out each and every day to protect the community. So grateful to be able to be here to visit with them and to talk to them about ways that we can bring federal resources through my uh, chairmanship of the Public Land Subcommittee in particular to Grand County. Uh, it's an issue that we care greatly about, and uh, we've had a chance to visit with, of course, uh, folks in Larimer County and Summit County and Boulder County as well, all of who are experiencing really similar issues in terms of the, the great wildfire risk, in particular with our public lands, Arapaho Roosevelt National Forest, Rocky Mountain National Park, which of course uh, the three counties share, and, uh, and White River National Forest uh, across the mountains. So anyway, lots of work to be done. Thanks for being here. I was actually up uh, hiking with my family on the East Shore Trail, and you could really see the scope of the burn on those yeah. hills, and it is quite um, amazing. As the head of the U.S. Subcommittee on National Parks, Forests, and Public Lands, do you see the pendulum swinging on the way we are kind of managing our public lands as far as fire uh, mitigation? I think so. And, and, you know, look, I try to describe to my colleagues out uh, east who, you know, some of whom have never been to Colorado, don't, they don't realize that my district is literally the size of New Jersey geographically, right? And trying to explain to them the burn scar, you know, here up in Grand Lake or uh, on the other side uh, of uh, Trail Ridge Road up in Estes Park uh, and in northern Larimer County by Red Feather Lakes. We actually had an opportunity to bring the Secretary of Agriculture, Secretary Vilsack, to Colorado to be able to give him the opportunity to see it for himself and recognizing, I think, the real need visiting with local partners that forest management has to change and that we've got to get serious about really investing in our forests and um, to you know do what is necessary to make sure that there aren't unnecessary fuels uh, that uh, uh, you know obviously can... Uh, can, can fuel a fire like the size of these troublesome fire, which will only grow um, in size and, uh, and, and uh, you know, speed uh, over the course of the next several years. Well, thanks. Okay. Um, 
DC can seem very far away to us in Grand County, as you, you have mentioned. It's also sometimes hard to give people back there a picture of our community he, here. But what good work is happening? Can you give us like your, you know, top three things that you think we're really making some progress on? Yeah. Uh, in a nutshell. Yeah, sure. Um, first, I would say with respect to education. You know, there are of course great educators here in Grand County. Uh, your superintendents and just doing wonderful work, and we want to do everything we can to support them. The SRS program, as you're probably aware of, the Secure Rural Schools program, incredibly important. Um, we've led that bill multiple times in the last Congress. Uh, we uh, led the bill in the House. It was signed by President Trump. We're very proud of that that legislation, which inures to the benefit of folks here in Grand County, real dollars uh, that uh, you know are transmitted to our school districts up here. And so I think the more that we can do uh, to help our local schools, the better off we all will be. Um, two, broadband. I actually think there's finally a recognition. Uh, it's, of course, far too late, but nonetheless, better late than never in Washington uh, that we're going to have to invest in broadband in different parts of our country. And of course, Grand County is no exception. And uh, and, and by the way, not just Grand County. I get, as I mentioned, I was in the Poudre River Canyon a week ago uh, and similar issues up there. So that, that's two. Three, Again, I, I would hearken back to the public lands. I actually think that there is, uh, we've created a bipartisan wildfire caucus, which is uh, chaired by myself and a Republican colleague of mine from the state of Utah, John Curtis. And we only have one rule for the caucus. It's that you can only join if you join with a member of the opposing party, which has kept the caucus kind of small for now, but um, it's getting bigger. There are eight members now, and our hope is that it'll get bigger over time because I think we'd like to see the pendulum that you just mentioned really swing and start to build some bipartisan consensus on the investments that are needed in our forests and uh, you know watershed mitigation and protection work and all the rest. And I do see some real forward movement on that front. We've been pretty proud of what we've done so far. A lot more to do, uh, but we're going to keep at it. Right. You're, uh, how, you're in your this is uh, second, second and a, yeah. yeah, so yeah. two and a half years. Two and in. a half years, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Scott, you, are, you have a couple. A lot more gray hairs than the last time <laughs> I was here in Grand County. But. Yeah, I would, I would say, how is your daughter adjusting to you being back now that the, the pandemic is sort of, you know, with vaccines, you're able to probably get back to more your regular travel schedule. How is your family handling yeah, so that? It's, it's certainly tougher. Uh, she's My daughter turns three uh, in August, and so she's just old enough now, I think, to start fully appreciating what it means to have, you know, for me to be gone. Um, of course, I felt that way since the day she was born. Um, so it's tough. Uh, it's a sacrifice, but I've got an incredible wife who, um, you know, is just a, a great partner. And, uh, and you know, they, they both know that uh, the work we're doing is important, just as the work that folks are doing up here in Grand County every day uh, is critically important. So it's, uh, it's a sacrifice we're happy to make. One more question for you, and you know, there's been um, kind of some movement in the county from our commissioners, I believe, but also just some uh, other people about potentially having in this redistricting effort coming forward, which I understand you have no say in that because it is a separate commission, an um, independent commission, that we would be moved over to District 3, which would be Lauren Boebert's district. And so I guess, for example, today we had very different weather than the Front Range. Like things can be very different here from the Front Range, and I'm sure you see that in your work. So what what would you say to Grand County residents who are wondering, do we belong? There, of course, you also have many supporters in our in this area who feel you're a capable and apt and extremely eloquent man who is representing us well. But you know, what do you say to those people who maybe are feeling that we don't belong with Boulder, we don't belong with the Front Range, we are Western Slope, and we should be districted as such? 
Yeah, you know, I'd say a couple of things. I mean, first, of course, uh, the the decision will be in the hands of an independent commission, and with good reason. And I'm glad that that's the case. Um, that finally, uh, in Colorado, uh, the decision as to how these districts are drawn won't be in the hands of elected officials, but in the hands of an independent commission. And uh, I certainly welcome whatever decision they make, and would encourage citizens, regardless of how they feel about the issue, one way or the other, to make their voices heard and submit, you know, their written comment to the commission. I know the commission's currently taking. Uh, public comment, and I suspect we'll have town halls across the uh, state as they make their final decision. At the end of the day, look, I love representing Grand County. It's been the privilege and honor of my life. Um, and I think that uh, the issues that, as I visit with folks, we have a great relationship with, of course, local government officials here in Grand County and the different cities within the county, and, uh, and with residents as well and community organizations. And as I visit with folks, my sense has been that the issues that, uh, that you all are experiencing up here are very similar uh, to the issues that folks are experiencing in Estes Park and in Red Feather Lakes, and in, uh, in Gilpin County, in Central City, and in Idaho Springs, and uh, Breck, and Frisco, and Summit County, all of the communities of which I represent. And uh, those shared interests from a land management perspective, the reality that our national forests and our national parks uh, don't respect jurisdictional lines, <laughs> they don't, you know, the political boundary lines don't really mean much. Um, you know, last year, at one point, as you know uh, all too well, we had five wildfires happening, raging simultaneously in our congressional district. Uh, and of course, the three you know, fires that uh, at, at, some, at one point were in fairly close proximity to each other, uh, the Calwood and Left Hand Canyon fire in Boulder County, which of course is adjacent to Grand County, uh, the Cameron Peak fire in Larimer County, and the East Troublesome fire in Grand County. And there was a lot to be said for uh, you know, the, the level of coordination between the various local government agencies in Larimer County, in Boulder County, in Grand County, uh, to be able to work together uh, in a crisis like that and to be able to have one federal representative that could assist them uh, was certainly something that I thought was of, uh, of great benefit and helped us and our team uh, really ensure uh, that uh, we were, you know, ready to go to help residents who literally were losing their homes, uh, you know, in Estes Park and in Red Feather Lakes and here in Granby uh, in different parts of our district in, in uh, Boulder uh, with the Calwood and Left Hand Canyon fire. So in any event, but as I said, I'm, uh, I'm grateful that there's an independent commission making that choice and uh, I look forward to, to whatever maps they, uh, they come up with. But in the meantime, I am honored to represent Grand County and I hope that folks listening will reach out to our office if we can help in any way. Yes, um, that's a great, I was going to actually ask that. So we've been talking with um, Congressman Joe Nagoose, who represents Grand County as um, our U.S. representative for Colorado in the 2nd District. And um, how do people who may want to reach out or get in touch with you, how, do, how is the best way to do that? They can go online, nagoose.house.gov, and they can uh, call us directly. Um, we have uh, district, various different offices throughout the congressional district and always available. Again, uh, questions, comments, ideas, criticisms, you name it, we want to hear it all. Great. And yeah, and I know I get like an email newsletter yeah, from you. Right. Um, the other thing is, as we did talk about that independent commission that is working on the redistricting, and um, I do have I, their email is colorado.redistricting2020 at state.co.us. So if you do have... Um, anything to say about the potential redistricting of Grand County from District 2 to District 3, um, that would be uh, the place to send that feedback. It's colorado.redistricting2020 at state.co.us. 
And um, Congressman Guz, is there anything that you really wanted to tell your, our listeners at KFFR that you didn't get a chance? I just want to say thank you for listening to Community Radio. Yay. And what a wonderful <laughs> opportunity for me to be able to say hi. Yeah, this so. is the second time that Congressman Guz has visited us, and we really appreciate him um, adding us onto his busy schedule. So thank you for being here. Anytime. You're tuned to Wildcard. I'm KVNF News Director Gavin Dahl. Next up, a musical interlude. This one from the archives. Bonnie Payne and Bridget Law, Colorado rock stars, performed live in studio at KGNU in Boulder a few years back when they first started performing Bonnie's original solo works while their band Elephant Revival was still a going concern. I had the pleasure of interviewing them and hearing this song for the first time live on air back then. The tune is called Phantoms in the Station. Here's a brand new song. You should tell them what it's about. Okay. Um, so T-Bone Burnett is a music producer that sent us an article by the New York Times and asked if we might be inspired by it, or a couple articles from the New York Times, um, kind of talking about how uh, there was a lot of different things that you could focus on in an article, but the aspect that I chose to focus on was kind of learning how to decipher through all of the information that's handed to us now through the internet and through um, social media, just being able to filter through some of the advertisements and kind of still um, find the inspiration and, you know, what feels real, I guess. <laughs> Does that, that kind of sums it up. <laughs> we'll see. Ready? <clears throat> in the station singing songs of quiet freedom drowned out by sold information to those too busy to question what could us occupied Do we need not wonder why That we need not have the time To hear their chain rattling singing Hunting hurried expectations vanishing finish where we racing what could replace honest reason what is worth my wondering should we summon some convenience Sometimes discomfort and lost meaning Are where we find our depth of being (laughs) 
those phantoms in the station Bodyless songs of salvation What to do with all that freedom Find the value in the question That was Bonnie Payne and Bridget Law performing an original tune called Phantoms in the Station, live in studio at KGNU. They'll be playing in Paonia on Saturday, June 12th, and KVNF is broadcasting live from the second of the two gigs. I'm geeking out about it. Honestly, I can't wait. Up next, KZMU's Sarah Mead recently conducted an interview with a Moab park ranger about leave-no-trace principles when visiting national parks. Moab local Karen Garthwaite considers herself a lifelong volunteer, beginning at age three, stuffing envelopes with her mom for the American Heart Association. Her dedication to public service now includes her 17 years of service to the national parks, first as a ranger at Arches, and now as an employee of both Arches and Canyonlands National Parks, overseeing interpretive media and assisting with their volunteer program. Karen led a litter cleanup service project at Sand Dune Arch shortly before Earth Day, which yielded a surprising seven pounds of trash, made up mostly of the small stuff. Yeah, you know, most of it is what we would call micro trash. Mm. So the stuff you might not even notice. In mm -hmm. fact, our volunteers will often say that when they come up. They're like, is there anything? Because mm. they're not seeing like a tire sticking out of a bush. Right. We don't wow. see that behavior at Arches and Canyonlands. We see cigarette butts, bottle caps gum the little piece of plastic that comes off when you open that granola bar when you think of it like that seven pounds really does start getting kind of impressive <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in light of earth day and the recent displays of vandalism on ancient rock art at sunshine wall near arches national park and at birthing rock near moab i asked karen about ways to balance the conversation around impact I was curious about what was on the other side of the spectrum of the big picture efforts that are being made to minimize human impact on wild lands. There is something that I definitely talk about with all of our volunteer groups that wasn't a part of my childhood, mm. and that's this notion of leave no trace. That has entered the vernacular, the common understanding. Not everybody is familiar with it. That's why it's still important to educate about. In fact, right now, we are seeing, I believe, a big upswell in brand new park visitors and perhaps very unaware of concepts like leave no trace and what they mean. Mm. And it doesn't just mean litter, right? It is associated with a whole suite of behaviors that get you to think about the impact that you're having, not just on the land, but also on each other. Mm. Principle number one <laughs> is plan ahead and prepare. That might not sound like a leave no trace principle until you think about what happens when you don't plan properly and you have to get rescued. Mm. Rescues cause impacts because if a human life is at stake, you're going to cut corners on the trail. You're going to do things that might leave a mark because there's a human life. Uh, the second one is walking on durable surfaces. Mm -hmm. So here everybody knows about biological soil crust or they should. So staying on rock, staying on loose sand where living things aren't trying to survive. Uh, number three is dispose of waste properly. Number four is leave what you find. Yes, Arches has lots of rocks, yeah. but if everyone took one home, right. 
we'd have a lot less. Or we'd be like the poor case of Fossil Cycad National Monument, which no longer exists because people came along and stole all the fossil cycads. Uh, number five is to uh, maintain your campfire or not promote wildfire, right? Number six is respecting wildlife, which is related to trash in a big way in my mind. Yeah. Because animals don't know the difference between the peanut butter or the plastic bag the peanut butter sandwich came in. Okay. You know, and can do things like consume plastics or bring a rotting cigarette butt back into their burrow because it's soft. Oh. But just think about all those toxins. Yeah. It's, it can get pretty ugly. Number seven is respecting other visitors on the trail. So acknowledging that you have a sound impact, especially if you're in canyon country because echoes are a thing. Leave No Trace principles do seem to be having a positive impact within the local national parks. Karen described another litter cleanup along Highway 191 in Moab between Lions Park and My Place Hotel, in which she and several volunteers picked up a whopping 75 pounds of trash, a stark contrast to the cleanup at Sand Dune Arch parking lot. But even with projects like these, managing our impact on this earth can feel daunting at times. Here's some advice from Ranger Karen. We're all doing the best we can and making the best choices that we can make. And sometimes just hearing about somebody else doing a litter pickup, if that inspires you to pick up two pieces of something the next time you're, I don't know, walking across the parking lot at City Market, any little thing that we can do to help brighten up the space that we share. But just, you know, taking those little moments, if you can, it can be really empowering and, and help uh, combat the malaise that can grow from contemplating those impacts. Well, thank you, Ranger Karen. All right. Thanks again. For KZMU News, I'm Sarah Mead. News Director Mike Clifford at KRZA Alamosa shared this interview with Laura Seifert from the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment about the new Colorado Response Program. On the video conference with us now, we have from the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment, Lara Seifert, and she is going to be telling us about a new program that Colorado's job seekers who have been affected by the pandemic, they can now take advantage of it. It's called Corresponds, and uh, it's a grant designed to help workers who are temporarily or permanently laid off due to the pandemic, and uh, we want to find out more about that, so that's why we're talking to Lara today. So thanks for talking with us today. Absolutely. It is my pleasure. I'm always eager to talk about um, opportunities for Coloradans who are needing to find some empl employment. So yeah, tell us about this um corresponds program um like it, it for people who are have been laid off due to the pandemic uh can you give us more uh specifics about who is actually eligible for the program we actually have a a little bit wider opportunity than that so absolutely if you have been laid off temporarily or permanently due to the due to the pandemic you are absolutely eligible and anyone who has been receiving unemployment insurance benefits, or if you would have been eligible to receive unemployment insurance benefits, those folks um, are also eligible to apply for these for these funds. And then also anyone who has been out of work for 27 weeks or longer, even even if it didn't have to do with the with the 
pandemic, you, you are also welcome to head in for some more information. And also, um, if you were a contract worker, a gig worker, or if you were doing any any kind of freelance work and, and your work slowed down or stopped because of the pandemic, you can also um, access um, some of these opportunities as well. So would that include, uh, say, uh, musicians or performers who uh, haven't been able to to get out and play because of the pandemic. I believe so. I think that if you can show that that you you have had um, a slowdown in your work because of the pandemic, and certainly you have, because unfortunately no one has been able to play and hear live music for quite some time, then I would I would really encourage you to find out some more specifics. And as I'm sure we're going to talk about soon, the key to accessing this grant will be to engage with your local workforce center. The next uh, question is, what does this grant provide? If I apply if I'm eligible and I apply and I get it, what do I actually get? This grant is all about temporary employment to help all of us recover from the pandemic. All of our local workforce centers have been going out into the communities and figuring out um, you know, what do you, what do you need in your area in order to recover. And so they've been engaging with some of those employers and, and organizations to create temporary jobs for um, folks um, who are looking to go back to work. We have tried to create opportunities that have good wages and sometimes there will be benefits available as well. These positions can last for up to six months, and they can work up to 40 hours a week. It really all depends upon the nature of the job. And so whenever we're thinking about supporting with the pandemic, you know, sometimes it's going to be temperature screening and, and it's going to be um, helping out at some of those vaccine sites. Sometimes it's it's going to be helping folks navigate all of the different resources in our communities. Sometimes it's going to be cleaning schools and other places that need to remain safe. And also sometimes it's going to be working in local food banks. All of our local workforce centers are really looking to the community to see what is needed. And then they are engaging with those businesses to create these job opportunities. If I have a business that's doing something like cleaning the schools or uh, I'm with the schools, I'm with a hospital looking for help uh, getting the vaccines out, from the employer point of view, um, I guess the same thing works. You, you, you would contact your local workforce center. You know, is that something that the uh, salaries get uh, subsidized for me or do all these jobs go through the state? It's going to be a combination of, of different ways that funding will, will work. And number one, I'm so glad that you asked this question because, um, because if you are doing COVID-related work, please do reach out to your local workforce center because, because um, we may be able to get you some help. All of these positions are going to be 100% subsidized, and this person will have no final cost for you. And um, sometimes we, we are going to be working with a temp service to take care of everything. Sometimes it makes sense for you to put them on the payroll and get um, a reimbursement. But the most important thing is that this person will be 100% subsidized. So they should be able to get to work right away. Uh, you can find out where they are, how to get to them, how to contact them. cdle.colorado.gov slash WFC. cdle.colorado.gov slash WFC. And yeah, talk to the uh, people at the Workforce Development Centers. Well, I think I pretty much, you know, I, and you talk about people uh, can kind of look into new fields as careers. And of course, uh, it also seems like all this stuff is doing things that'll help us 
all out in the in the long run uh, help us dealing with the pandemic and everything. I think I've gone through all my questions. Is there anything else, though, Lara, that you want to mention before we finish up? Sure. I would just like to let folks know um, your local workforce center has tons of really great resources and opportunities. They offer a lot of free career training. There's someone there who can who can support you with your resume, someone who can help you with interviewing skills, someone who can help you explore a new career pathway. Like I said, if that's going to involve some training, they would be they would be more than happy to connect you with that training and support you finding a a job. Um, you, you you don't have to have lost your job due to the due to the pandemic in in order to get served um, by our services in our local workforce centers. We have we have great staff people who would love to help you with your employment journey. It's all it's all one hundred percent free to to you. So um, I, I certainly encourage you to visit the folks um, at those at, at those workforce centers. We'd love to see you. Uh, we've been talking about uh, mostly the Corresponds grant that can uh, help people out who have uh, mostly who have had issues because of the uh, pandemic with their employment. But there are resources for anybody uh, looking for work or for careers at the workforce centers. Take advantage. No cost uh, to you other than that tax bill that comes uh, once a year. But uh, really, that bill is coming whether you use these resources or not. So uh, take advantage of the local workforce center. Again, anything else you want to mention before we finish, Lara? Thank you so much for the opportunity to share about this grant. And um, I do hope that, um, that 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 any and all of your listeners take advantage of either this grant or um, or just any of the services that our workforce centers provide. Like I said, they're ready to help because this is our passion and this is and this is what we want to do. So, so we would love to help um, anyone um, get back to work and um, and get back to get back to some version. Of it. Yeah. Oh, that sounds so good. Uh, yeah. So thanks. Lara Seifert from the Colorado Department of Labor and Employment. Uh, again, contact your local workforce center. We have been talking to Lara Seifert again. Thank you for talking with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Before we go, check out this story from KDNK Carbondale's blind journalist Nick Eisenberg. On his monthly tactile traveler program, he explores a shop that encourages customers to touch the merchandise. We occasionally do stories on businesses that do things right for blind folks and people with low vision, sometimes intentionally or when it just works out well for us. One of those businesses is where I live in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. It's high country gems and minerals, but everyone here just calls it the rock shop. Owner Patty Rockstar, I don't think that was her given name. We have rocks, gems, minerals, fossils, crystal singing bowls, lots of jewelry, beautiful things, mostly from the earth. What inspired this story is a sign next to what customers like the most and isn't for sale. It's a geo, a lava bubble cut in half, and the inside is filled with crystals. Next to it is a sign that says, please touch. If customers are unable to read the sign, they tell them that it's okay to touch the merchandise. 
I put a sign on it saying, please touch. Why did I do that? Because nobody else ever asks you to touch. So we remind people of that all the time. Doesn't matter who you are or what your abilities, um, we invite people to touch. I'll say, please notice that this one says, please touch, because uh, humans are really strange. They see, um, or adults are anyway, <laughs> um, don't touch because that's what we're used to. Don't touch, don't touch, don't touch. And so for us to invite people to touch, and that keeps people coming back. One of those customers that keeps coming back is tactile traveler listener, Renee Anderson. I love it. I absolutely love the rock shop. Um, my husband uh, collects rocks, and so does my son. And we have gone to lots of rock shops all over the place, okay? And that one we keep going back to. And they do. They want you to touch. And they and that's one thing. Patty's always like, here, touch this, touch this. You know, always saying that. And that's how I see, obviously, with, with my hands. And I love to have that experience of actually touching it. Because there's some places they don't want you to touch things. And I'm like, you know what? I can't experience it if I can't touch it. So I want to touch it. And that that place is so open to letting you touch anything and, and check things out. Patty Rockstar told us that they removed the please touch sign during COVID-19. But she said, since things are getting back to normal, they'll soon be encouraging customers to touch the merchandise again. If you know of any businesses that either by accident or on purpose would be interesting for us, please let us know by sending an email to the tactile traveler at gmail.com. You're listening to the tactile traveler, empowering blind and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. You've been listening to a special edition of Wild Card on KVNF. All of these stories were produced by member stations of the Rocky Mountain Community Radio Coalition. You can learn more about our award-winning public service journalism collaborations and link to each of the member stations at rockymountaincommunityradio.org. I'm Gavin Dahl.